Nothing like a little God spell to start off a Sunday morning. I appreciate our music ministry here at First Community Church. Fred Craddock was a great preacher from Tennessee. Spent a number of years in my backyard when I lived in Atlanta. He was a preacher down at, he was a teacher of preaching uh, down, down at uh, Emory University. Just a brilliant storyteller. He loved to tell the story about his uncle, an uncle who uh, adopted greyhound racing dogs. You may know that sometimes when those dogs are at the end of their career, they're put down, and his, Fred's uncle just couldn't stand that, so he decided he would always adopt them whenever he could. Well, the first time he did this, Fred went to visit his uncle and his family. Went to the house, and sure enough, there was this adopted greyhound dog bouncing around on the living room floor with his uncle's kids. They were laughing and playing and jumping. The dog was licking the kids' faces. It was a beautiful scene. And Fred sat down next to the dog, and he said, Dog? Did you quit racing because you got too old? And the dog said, no, 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 look at me, I'm bouncing around, I'm still young, I feel great. No, that's not, that's not it at all. He said, well, did you stop racing because you weren't winning many races? Oh, no, 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 I could go back there today and win two or three, I guarantee you. Well, dog, did you stop racing because you weren't making enough money for your master? No, not at all, sir. I was making a lot of money for my master, bringing in lots of dough. Then, dog, why did you quit? Why? Because I figured out that the rabbit isn't real. <laughs> the rabbit I've been chasing isn't real. What are you chasing? What are you going after in this one life that we have to live? Something that's real? Something that can, can boost your soul and bring brightness to your life? or something temporary, false? What are you chasing after? What do you want? <clears throat> James writes, sisters and brothers, whenever you face trials, consider it joy. Perhaps this is one of the greatest tests we face in this one life that we live. The choices, the things that matter, Determining what is real, what it is we desire more than anything else. What, what are you chasing? Is it real? Maybe let's get a little even more personal this morning. Let's not only ask what are you chasing, but who are you? At the core of, of, of your very being, at the center of your soul, who are you? I don't mean who are you based on the role you've been given at work or at home or by society, not where are you from, who are you? I mean, one, one could say that I'm a father and a husband and a pastor and a preacher and a teacher and a leader and a coach and a host of other things, but strip all those titles away, all those roles, push them aside. Who am I? Who are you? The center of your soul. It's not an easy question to answer. So much of how we think of ourselves comes from our work or, or from our role in life or too often from the things we attain, from the things we, we gather and surround ourselves with. Theologian Miroslav Volf can really help us here. He says there are, there are two kinds of, of richness. There is the richness of having and the richness of being. The richness of having is the easier one to chase after, though, because it's usually focused on external things, getting those things and gathering them. The other is the inner, which rarely ever has anything to do with something external. 
The thing is, we, we know at the core of our souls that those things that we can gather really aren't permanent. I mean, you, you, might, you might think they're going to be, but they really aren't in the long run. Ecclesiastes 1.1 begins, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The Hebrew word for vanity is, is chabel. It means mist. It's, it's as though the old preacher in the Old Testament is saying, life is here, and then it's gone that quick. It's like steam on the mirror. There one moment, gone the next. Sometimes the things we're chasing after we know are here one moment, gone the next. The flower fades, the grass withers, the car breaks down, the coat looks old. What is it you're chasing after? A richness of having or a richness of being? It's John Ortberg who pointed out that most of us are, are truly against materialism. In an extensive survey, it was found that 89% of Americans oppose a materialistic point of view. Same survey, though, though, revealed that almost the exact same percentage of Americans want more in their life. You kind of see the paradox there. We're, we're not materialistic, but we do want more. <laughs> Here's an example. I, I drive a Nissan Murano, nice little car. It's an SUV. I bought it last November because all the reviews I read said it's one of the best SUVs you can drive with all-wheel drive, and it works great in the snow. So I just want you to know I'm ready for an Ohio winter. Just bring it on, okay? Go ahead and bring it on. It's a fine car. It works well. Decent mileage, all of that. Last week, though, I was on my way home from an appointment downtown. I came up to a red light, waiting at the, at the signal right next to me in the lane to my side, a Ferrari. <laughs> what color do you think it was? Of course it was red. Of course it was. And so I had a silent prayer. I kept my eyes open, but I had a silent prayer. I said, Lord, I'd be a better pastor if I drove one of those. <laughs> now, you know that's silly, and you know that's just a goofy kind of thing, and it's really a myth, isn't it? To think that somehow if we could just get more, we could be better. We'd be better persons. We make silly promises. Oh, if I could win the lottery, I'll give half of it away. All that sort of thing. And yet we still get caught up in it. My friend Sid Elliott was an executive with Bell South. He, he did a moment for stewardship in, in his church a few years ago, one like, like Jason and Amy did. Sid had discovered some, some research on how much the average American thought they needed to live, to live comfortably. Not, not with a massive amount of wealth, but just to be comfortable. The research, though, couldn't find an actual amount. It was all over the place, from very small to very large amounts. There just seemed to be no, no real average, no real number that came up the most. They couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And so they changed the research, or they, at least they changed their angle on the way they got into it. And they began to notice something. There was a trend in almost all of the answers. Whether somebody made $20,000 a year, 200,000 a year, or 2 million, almost every single person responded by saying, if I just had about 20% more. 20,000 or 20 million. If I just had about 20% more. You see what that reveals about us? We tend to be stuck in the richness of having while avoiding the richness of being, while missing out on the joy and the contentment that comes from living what James calls a mature and complete life. Now, allow me to be clear here this morning. Money is neutral. Money can be used to fund joy, health, and wholeness for the world. Money can be used to fund evil and terror and fear 
Money itself is neutral. In this series, what we're looking at is our own lives, wondering who we are at our core, wondering where where we're going to find the greater gifts, the finer gifts, the gifts of being. So we'll dive deeply into what writer Wallace Stegner calls a worthy life. Listen to his words. But we all hoped, in whatever way our capacities permitted, to define and illustrate the worthy life. We all hoped to define and illustrate the worthy life. That's the test that James is writing about. There are trials and more along the way. Some of them are own foolish mistakes. But in the long run, the greatest test in life is centered on the path to the richness of being. This little letter of James, by the way, tradition says he may have been the brother of Jesus. No one knows for sure. This little letter begins with an admonition that speaks to these deep desires. Sisters and brothers, whenever you face trials, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He's reminding his, his ancient congregation that joy comes not in the accumulation of stuff and external things, but the interior. Even tests and trials and downfalls, mistakes of our own making and choosing even, can become opportunities for growth and strength, developing endurance and maturity. And so he goes on and says, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete. When we give ourselves over to things that matter, like love and generosity and joy, a kind of faith that knows how to endure the difficulties is the one that develops. I found another translation that changes the word endurance to patience. Patience leads to wholeness. Impatience almost always leads to problems. I remember several years ago, I was working as a youth minister, was working part-time, but really put in 40 or 50 hours, loved the kids, loved my job, and wasn't making very much money, and I was looking at my friends who were also in their late 20s, and they were doing much better than I was, making a whole lot more money, had a whole lot more stuff, so you know what I did? I got a couple of credit cards, and I charged them right up to the limit on both of them. All of a sudden, we had all kinds of things we didn't really need, and a credit card, two credit card bills at the end of the month that we could barely pay. Why? because I had no patience, because I thought somehow because I was working hard, I ought to get that stuff ahead of time. What Julie and I have discovered while going through that trial and that test is that we get so much more joy when we can give to concerns and causes that we care about. The second largest check we write every month after we pay for our condo is the check we write to First Community Church. Why? Well, partly because we've fallen in love with this place. But more than that, we've seen how amazing the ministries of this congregation is, not only to our members and friends, but to those in the Columbus community around the country and indeed around the world. Julie puts that check in the offering plate with joy and satisfaction and happiness, knowing, knowing that it's going to fund amazing work here and around the globe. And so James draws attention to these tests that we trials and, and says, look, enduring them can bring patience. A scholar writing about James says, he basically is saying to us, don't panic, don't overreact, don't turn a problem into a crisis. You see, we followers of Jesus, we folks who are trying to live the Christian faith, are not simply trying to get through life, we're trying to get to a life that's worth living. And even if you've never read James's little book or had any idea about his practical advice before today, I suspect that most of you already knew. When you came into church today, that it's not about the stuff. It's not about the things. 
It's not about the external richness, but the interior being, the richness of being. And yet, it's so difficult to live, isn't it? As much as we know about it, as obvious as the truth is, it's still so hard to put it into practice. Let me go back to another story from my youth ministry days. I'd finally gotten a job, a full-time job, pretty good pay and all of that. And I was determined to become the finest youth minister my denomination had ever seen. I was going to be on the cover of Youth Ministry Illustrated, you know. Uh, My name was going to be known around the country, and people would come to me for advice on how to be a, a good youth minister. Well, I got to this church and found out that their youth ministry had actually kind of fallen apart. You know, we're going to need to rebuild things, Glenn, and maybe you can get started. My first uh, Sunday night youth program, I had four kids. I still remember their names. Over 20 years ago, but it was Michael and Katie, Tony and Allison. Sweet kids, good kids. They're like 40-something now, but that's another problem. They said to me, hey, Glenn, we're glad you're here. We're supposed to go to Mexico next month on a mission trip. I said, great, what are the plans? They said, well, we're supposed to go. That's the plan. So I called our friends at Amore Ministries. You know about Amore. I called them up and said, I've got four kids here. They want to do some work in Mexico. Can we come? He said, sure, bring them next month. Went down, all four kids, me and another adult sponsor. Had a great week working in a home, helping to repair some, some things that were needed in this, in this very extraordinarily poor family's home. After that, things began to turn. We had a lot of kids come to a Halloween party, like 20 or 30. We had a Valentine's dance in the church social hall of all places. Had 50 kids come. Two years after that first, that very first mission trip down to Mexico, we took 70 adults and, and young people to go and build three homes for the poorest of the poor. Things were rocking. I was also working on a, on a doctor of ministry up at Claremont. I'd been invited to be a keynote speaker at a variety of places. In fact, I was invited to be the Sunday morning keynote speaker at the Kinko's Copier Convention in San Diego. <laughs> I came home from that thing going, man, I've made it. I have really hit the big time. I'll never forget a conversation with Julie on a Friday after those first two years. You see, I was succeeding in ministry and failing miserably in life. We sat down over coffee early on a Friday morning, and she said, you're married to the church. You're not married to me. I'm not your mistress. If you're not going to be my husband, maybe we should get a divorce. I was failing miserably at life. We had a very good friend who knew of a therapist who worked specifically with ministers and their families. He sent him to this therapist. His name was Bill Rowley, wonderful man. You know how when you go see a therapist, you fill out a little chart and tell him what's going on, what the story is. Julie gave him her version. I gave him my version. He looked at Julie and said, yes, we, we have some work to do. Then he read mine and he looked at me and it was almost like he had one of those cartoon captions over his head. You know what I'm talking about? And it was in all capital letters, Glenn, we have work to do. And we did. And it was hard, and it was tough, and we cried, and we fought, and we got through all kinds of difficult conversations. And six months later, Dr. Rowley said to us, you guys keep coming back to see me once in a while, but you've really made tremendous strides. Congratulations to you. I thank God for the way you've been willing to take on this test and get to the other side. In fact, even today, 20 years later, Julie and I will say to each other, and we're, if we're having a, you know, a loud conversation, do you ever have a loud conversation with people who care about? Might be in the middle of a conversation, one of us will stop and say, I wonder what Bill Rowley would say about this. 
and most of the time it's, Glenn, be quiet. <laughs> Why am I sharing these stories with you? Because I know. I want you to know that I know that this one life that we share together is hard. The, the life towards maturity and completeness, peace and wholeness, towards a richness of being is never an easy one to take. The path is never a, a, a wide open, simple one. There, there's a story that Philip Yancey likes to tell about a woman he, he knew who used to go around and hear famous preachers preach. And she went to this one Presbyterian church where a well-known pastor got up to, to give the sermon. And in the middle of the sermon, he quoted the famous theologian William Barclay who said, endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but turn it to glory. Endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it to glory. With that, he pounded the pulpit, he turned around, turned his back to this congregation, and he sobbed. And the woman told her friend, I didn't really understand the quote or the sermon, but when I saw that man sobbing, I could only imagine the difficulties, the harsh reality of whatever it was he was facing. We know enough about life to realize that all of us face these moments, these tests, these trials, sometimes even seasons, when all we can do, when all we can do is turn our backs and cry. You see this advice from James, it's not about pretending like everything is great. It's not a theological approach based on Bobby McFerrin's little song, Don't, don't Worry, Be Happy, and I like Bobby McFerrin, don't send me a note. Don't, it's not about that. It's not a bury your head in the sand approach to, to life. No, no, and no. It's a lesson learned in the hard streets of the tests and the trials that every one of us face. It is the recognition that what matters more than anything else is the richness of being, that is, of being in love, of being in community, of finding the joy that comes with completeness, with maturity. Consider it joy, sisters and brothers, when you face the trials and tests that come in this one life, knowing that enduring indeed will bring a richness of being.